Welcome to the second official episode of Millennial Manhood. And I've got to say that part of me didn't think we would actually make it to a second episode, but through the grace of God and some magic of the internet, the first episode was actually received to a lot of fanfare. So we're back. And in this episode, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing my good friend, uh, the myth, the man, the legend. You've heard him on an introductory podcast, Adam Roddy. And I decided to interview Adam Roddy in this episode because if he's going to be co-hosting certain certain episodes with me and he's going to be interviewing people uh, on his own at certain times, I figured you guys might want to actually know who this guy is. So Adam, introduce yourself. Uh, well, yeah, happy to be here. Uh, for those listening, you might have heard me on the introductory episode, like Yavitsa said. I also appreciate you going ahead and roping me in now to hosting current episodes. For those listening, I had zero plans of it now, but now I guess I have no choice. That's actually how I try to live my life, ask forgiveness, not permission. You know, just tell enough people somebody's going to do something and then eventually they'll do it. Well, I think that's why we're friends. Uh, I really was given no choice in the matter. Bam, there we go. Well, I'm super excited about this episode because I've known you for several years. We've been good friends for a long time. There have been many a time when you and I are sitting on uh, the legendary bouch in my old uh, apartment, <laughs> the balcony couch, just having manversations. And we lived together at one point in our uh, glorious duplex. So uh, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Give us a little bit of a uh, background. Who is Adam Roddy? Yeah, well, uh, Adam Roddy, by the way, I'm going to be speaking about myself in third person for the entirety of this podcast. But uh, Adam Roddy was born in Dayton, Tennessee, a um, very small town outside of Chattanooga. And for most of my life, I lived in this small town. I mean, if it was the kind of town where if you wanted to do something fun, you drove to another town, and that would usually be Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, but eventually, after being there all the way up till 18, I graduated high school and went to the University of Tennessee, and which is where Yavitz and I met. And that would have been my freshman year. And then the bouch came and a lot of good times during that. I got heavily involved in uh, my undergraduate career, um, did pretty well academically as well. And then after that, I finally went on to my – I guess you could say my dream, my long-term dream of going to law school – and then somewhere along the way, I found out I didn't want to be a lawyer, which was quite a shock to me at the time, but ended up being a, a great decision in the long run. Um, and then in the middle of law school, I got, decided to get my MBA because apparently I'm just a glutton for punishment and don't know what it's like to, to not have finals or, or anything else in the academic setting in my life. And then now I'm in Nashville, uh, really close to the great and not so late Yavitsa Jerchevich. Well, and I really, really am excited to talk about this portion of your life, the Dayton, Tennessee portion of your life, the, the thriving metropolis. Some of you might remember it from your history books. It's where the Scopes trial was held. Um, also the home of the Strawberry Festival, which I've been to. It's very interesting. But, you know, this podcast being about millennial manhood and, the, and you know, the lessons that we've learned in life and, and trying to help each other become better at, you know, all aspects of life. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the ideal that you had of manhood growing up in Dayton, Tennessee? Yeah. Um, well, well, Dayton, Tennessee, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people that may be listening who grew up in a small town, they can definitely relate or at least understand. A lot of the idea of manhood when you grow up in a small town is a lot of the people know a lot of the people. Everybody kind of has an idea of who each other is. You you see each other, whether it's a church or you see each other at events at the the amazing worldwide famous Strawberry Festival um, or the yearly Scopes trial reenactment. You kind of see the same people and everybody, like I said, they kind of all know each other. And so my father growing up was very involved in the community. And not only was he involved, but he had been involved for many, many years. He actually grew up in Dayton, Tennessee. And his father, my grandfather, was a justice of the peace. And so not only that, but he was a, uh, a manager of a local five and dime back then. And so a lot of people knew Johnny Roddy in the community. And my father growing up, a lot of people knew him. He started getting involved in things like the Optimist Club. He was a volunteer firefighter for over 20 years. Um, and in dad, if you're listening, and it's actually longer than 20 years, I'm sorry. Uh, he 
would do ride-alongs and would work very often with the uh, sheriff's department and still does in some capacities. And even still, now that he's moved to Chattanooga, uh, works a lot with the sheriff's department currently through Homeland Security. He was a deacon in our church, and he was pretty much well-known and very well-respected in the community. So when I grew up, my idea of manhood was give to the community, be involved in the lives of the people around you, and be seen as a leader, not because you necessarily want to be a leader, but because you're the person who is there, will be there, can be counted on, um, and is just people naturally kind of gravitate as someone to respect and someone to, to go to as that community leader. And so me and my brother, we, we joke about quite often uh, how Gary Roddy, my, our father, doesn't make a mistake. And, or the only time he made a mistake was when he thought he was wrong. And so it's, uh, it was, in some ways, it was a hard model to live up to um, just because my, my dad is a very great man and he strives every day to give back and he sacrifices daily and has sacrificed for many, many years for other people whether it's waking up at 4 a.m. to help put out a fire that he's not even getting paid to put out, he'll do it. Um, whether it's organizing an entire Homeland Security force for a small town on his, in his free time for no other reason than he thinks there's a need for it, he'll do it. Whether it's being a gun instructor. Uh, it's, I mean, it's kind of like a, the whole idle hands thing is never applied to him. He can't really sit still. Uh, he would much rather be helping others. And he gets a lot of enjoyment and I would imagine a lot of peace from that. So I think growing up with, with my father being that sort of example is really what pushed me and led me in high school and especially in undergrad to be involved in as many organizations as possible and to always be known as the guy you could call and would get something done. And I think that's somewhat of the reputation that I gained my freshman year in undergrad uh, was sort of the Johnny on the spot guy. And it, it meant a lot of late nights for me and a lot of unexpected phone calls and unexpected tasks and challenges that I had to do. But that, that was all the example that I had was that who are you to not give back? Who are you to not throw your hat into the ring for this organization, even if it's just participating or attending a meeting and voicing your input? And if that input's valuable and if you are seen as someone they can count on, you're naturally going to kind of move up the ranks. You're going to be seen as that person to come to and go to. And I would definitely say that that was the example I had is obviously no, there's no such thing as a perfect man. Um, but as far as self-sacrifice goes and as far as giving back and playing a major role in your community, there's very few examples that I could ever think of that would be better than my father. Well, it's quite obvious just listening to you talk about him. I mean, you. I asked you a question about yourself and you spent five minutes talking about him. So it's obvious how much he means to you and how much of an impact he's had on your life and, and what you see as character um, or what, what you perceive to be honor, um, particularly in, in your formative years. You know, you, you talked a little bit about being uh, Johnny on the spot. Do you feel like that ever hindered you in any way from a, from a, social standpoint or from maybe stretching yourself too thin or, uh, you, you know, what, what are some of the struggles that you had with that mindset and trying to live up to that ideal, particularly as a young man? Absolutely. I think more than anything that probably manifested itself in my undergraduate career, uh, that there's a joke and I, it's not so much a joke as almost a universally understood truth in, in college. Although there's, there's a lot of people who defy this truth in a variety of ways, but they, some people are just referred to as the triangle. It's the idea that you can either have good grades, be involved or have a social life. And you can only pick two. You can't have all three. And I would definitely say that during my first two to three years in undergrad, especially I was involved and I had really good grades at the time. And I had very little social life. I was not the person to be known to be going out to very many parties or um, meeting friends out for social events. If I was even at an organizational meeting and then after the meeting, a lot of people there would be saying something along those lines of, hey, let's go to this restaurant and grab a bite to eat as, as a group, as an organization. And I was already a part of that organization and there at the meeting and it would not have been too difficult 
for me to simply leave that meeting and go to the restaurant with them. However, I can even remember my freshman year when I really wanted to meet more people and, and connect with them and, and do things outside of the academic or organizational setting. I was so focused on my grades and so focused on all the organizations I felt like I had to be a part of and that I wanted to be a part of that I was seeing very little outside of those settings. And so once my undergraduate career was over, I could count myself as someone who had a, a lot of colleagues and a lot of peers, but very few actual friends. And I think that would, that would definitely be the thing that I, I felt that hurt me a little bit more. It got better. It got better my senior year when I'd already finished my major and I was more just wrapping up my academics by taking a few general ed classes and, and a lot of fun classes to just fill up my schedule since I was mostly done with my major at that time. And so I kind of didn't have to focus on the academic side and could focus more on the social side. Um, so my senior year was a lot more fun and I definitely took it a little bit easier when I went into law school and MBA school as far as being involved. Um, but when I graduated undergrad, I could definitely say that I, I had very few true friends. Thankfully, I count you among them. And, and obviously, our friendship really came out of that. Um, but I would say that our friendship definitely solidified once I was out of undergrad. So th if I had to say how it may have hurt me in my life, it would definitely be during that period. In high school, it's a little bit different because you're going to school with this, in the same classes with the same people from for the majority of the day. So regardless of what your social life is, it's already wrapped up into your academic life. Um, but in college, I would say a lot of people, um, especially a lot of men, I would say probably face that kind of decision. Maybe they only get one. Maybe they're in a particularly hard program where all they can do is focus on their academics. I've, I've heard the story many a time and they feel like they don't have enough time to join that one organization they wanted to be a part of or, or go out with friends occasionally. Um, I think it's definitely a struggle. It's a hard balance to find. Uh, and, and I definitely saw the results of how I chose to balance my life during college. Yeah, there's definitely a vivid memory that I have of you where you were significantly more reserved than um, a lot of the other people that I knew in our social circles. And I was a little bit more of a degenerate than you were in undergrad. So a little, a lot. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> well, I just like to have a good time. I, I, I firmly believed in the three triangle deal, but I was like, you know, I'll give 60% to this one and 50% to this one. And then like 80% to this one. Um, Listen, and, you're talking and, to a former political science major, not a math major. That's way over <laughs> my head. Yeah, I know. Right. But I, I do remember you almost coming out of your shell and, and going from this relatively what seemed to me not shy. That's the wrong terminology. You weren't shy. You were just kind of reserved to one of the most fun people I know. I mean, I, I, I can always count on you to say, hey, let's let's go do something fun. Let's go to the bars. Let's go have a drink. Let's go whatever it may be. So that's that's been a really awesome change that I've seen in you just from a personality standpoint. And then obviously we connected on other things as well. But, you know, a lot of people don't know this. Well, actually, I guess nobody who's listening to this would know this except for the people who know you. But you were actually student body president of the University of Tennessee. So tell me a little bit about the leadership lessons you learned, because obviously you were you were popular enough to be elected president of a 30,000, you know, people student body. Tell me about the leadership lessons as a young man at 21 years old that you learned being in that position. There's definitely a few. There's definitely a few. Uh, I would say the, the first one that I learned probably via the hard way is that good friends usually don't make good coworkers. And when, when you run for student body president, there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of energy because uh, there's an end goal that's easy to determine. Win. Win the campaign. And so there's, there's this kind of this fire behind everybody that really pushes them. And yeah, you're going to be at each other's throats probably a little bit more because it's a little bit more stressful. Um, but then once, once I got into the office, uh, one thing I definitely noticed is that it's a whole different dynamic if you were pretty good friends with somebody first and you knew them for several years. And then suddenly you were – obviously, it's not in a, like a complete work environment kind of scenario, but – it is a very, it's a very similar to a work scenario because you have people who have different hierarchies in a way. I had an administrative team that 
technically reported to me, but these were the same people that I had known for several years now. And I had laughed with, joked with, went out with, and all these other factors. And so it was definitely a weird scenario for both parties involved. It wasn't just me feeling this when there'd need be something that needed to get done. And I would, I would try to work with people and sometimes technically as their boss say, can you have this done by this day? And when there's that layer, that heavy layer of initial friendship that, that serves as the foundation for this work-like relationship, I think both parties have a hard time treating each other like they would normally do if they had only first met or just met in an office-type environment. And so it's, it's definitely hard. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a, a, a quote that stuck with me for a while now is, there's two ways to lose a friend. One is to borrow and the other is to lend. And just because you're close to somebody and just because you know them really well and they're a good friend of yours does not necessarily mean that they're going to be really good in a different capacity. And this is not to say that the people that were on my staff and that worked with me regularly were not good at their jobs and were not amazing people because I, I truly believe that they were. Um, I think this is just a dynamic that you don't find very many places in the world. You don't find that many scenarios other than I guess if really close friends were entrepreneurs and they started a business. Maybe, maybe that's a good comparison. But I would imagine those same entrepreneurs could tell you countless stories of how the fact that they were close friends resulted in these kind of problems, these kind of hard to understand relationships and, and how to deal with uh, a friend in an environment where it's not about friendship, it's about getting a job done or getting something completed by deadline. So that was definitely the first lesson that I learned. Um, and once again, to reiterate, this is not to say that the people I worked with didn't do a good job because they really did. Um, it's just a very interesting dynamic to try to figure out when you were friends for several years and then now there's this kind of authority relationship and neither party is that used to it and neither party truly knows the best way to go about it. Uh, so that was definitely the first lesson I learned uh, being student body president is that you really need to understand the type of relationships you're going to have in office and you're going to need to probably, if I had to do it again, I'd probably try to set some really clear uh, boundaries isn't the right word, but really clear and instructions isn't the right word either. But regardless, I'd really try to set things clear at the beginning of, of how we needed to act, at least in an office setting and at least in a student government setting when we were getting things done. Because I don't think any of us really knew what it meant. Um, and we probably have only truly determined what the relationship dynamic was only years after the fact. Well, I can relate to that because in my business, so you build relationships with people um, personally, and then they may become clients over time in, in the realm that I work. And a lot of the times when I'm, when I'm speaking to younger financial advisor, uh, sorry, financial advisors out there, I can't even say my own job title. Um, I'll tell them that if you're reaching out to somebody you've known personally for years, make it very clear up front when you call them that this is a business conversation. This is not a personal call. This is a business call. Set the tone immediately. I really do believe that um, when in doubt, be honest, because there's only you can't get in, into trouble. You you might say something hurtful, or you might say something maybe disrespectful. But if you're being honest, you can at least stand on that ledge and say, "I was being honest about the statement that I made." If you're going to, you know, try to maneuver one of those scenarios and 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 you're not going to tell the truth. You're just going to end up talking yourself into a lie and talking yourself into just a false reality from that standpoint. And that can cause a lot of issues along the way. But I would also say you, it's, it was definitely a job, what you were doing. That's a 40 hour a week job. No oh, questions I, asked. It, it absolutely was. And, and I think a lot of people who've gone into that role and who've experienced it, expect it to be like a club president kind of role. They expect, you know, oh, I'm going to have a weekly meeting that I'm going to run and there's going to be some events that I'm going to make sure that I'm at. I'm going to work with my officers to do this or do that. I don't think they realize, and I have spoken with several of my predecessors before and even uh, some individuals that came after me in the role. And I don't think anybody's prepared for the fact that the first two weeks after you get the SGA email account for your office the sheer amount of emails that you will receive saying that you are not only invited, but you're not only requested, you're expected to be at meetings one through 20 this week. And it's, it's not as easy as 
accomplishing what you what you said you're going to do during the campaign and it's not as easy as simply running your own organization you're a voice you're you're an elected voice and if you're not attending all these meetings that may seem boring it may be the 25th meeting for the traffic and parking transportation committee and that might seem dry as hell and it may be but it's your duty to be there and it's your duty to maybe catch that one thing out of three meetings that directly impacts the students and you know it's your job to be there or maybe your duty to present policy or policy change that you know needs to happen so the students can benefit and it's your job to not only be present at those meetings or at the relevant meeting to present it on but in your own free time which you probably don't have too much of to come up with a policy itself a, a full-fledged proposal to present on and then convince a lot of individuals that it has to happen or it's beneficial for it to happen or it's not very costly for it to happen which comes up probably more often than the others and so i think i think that's the the big underestimation of it all is i think a lot of individuals when they have gone into the role or it could be any role i think they underestimate the requirements of it and they underestimate not just the requirements but the the daily the daily things that have to happen on top of all the things that you just want to do and you want to achieve which is a, is a tough thing to figure out a proper blend for. Um, do I go to this meeting and forego working with my team on putting forth this one promise that we made? Or do I you know, respectfully decline that meeting and maybe lose face with an administrator that I might want to present something to down the road? Well, and James and I spoke about this last week, but we talked about you know, the inability to be honest and how eventually that turns you into a coward. And in the position of being student body president of 30,000 students, do you feel like you ever let yourself get into that position of acting as a coward? Or do you feel like you overcame that with the uh, opportunities that did show themselves with, with that scenario? I mean, I would say there'd definitely be times where I acted like a coward. I might not have realized it as cowardice at the time, but you know, you get X amount of emails per week all inviting you to an event or to speak somewhere or to a meeting or on a council or a board. And it's really easy to just hit yes down the line and say, of course, I'll be there. Yes, I'll be there. Um, I'll be there at 430. I'll be there at 330. Um, I'll do my best to be there. And I probably could have saved more face by simply saying, no, I'm sorry, I will not be there. May I send somebody in my stead? Then by making so many promises and not always knowing that I couldn't make it, but knowing there was a decent chance I would be unable to make it. And I think, I think it's better to say, no, I can't do that. And then surprising them by maybe attending anyways, or surprising them by sending someone in your stead, or if as long as it's not too formal of a setting, showing up a little bit late or having to leave a little bit early, then promising the world and not delivering on it. I think people, like you said, I think, I think honesty and the truth is, is lost. I think most lies these days are lies of convenience. And I probably told many lies of convenience. I know I did. And it wasn't out of malice. It was out of, it was out of pure convenience. It was out of the fact that I thought I would save more face by agreeing to it and then just dealing with fate on that day. And if I, if I knew it was maybe unlikely, I wasn't going to go just maybe coming up with a quick email apology the day of, or, or simply not showing up. And it's the harder thing to tell the truth a lot of the time. If it was easy, I mean, there'd hardly be anything known as a lie these days. But but cowardice takes many forms. And depending on what you're doing or or what role you're in, it can be an easy way out, or it, it can be something that that's more difficult to to even understand in the moment. But it I would say more than often, more often than not, it's it's the easy choice, and you may not even realize that the choice you're making is out of cowardice, which is is really intriguing in and of itself. I, I never thought of myself as a coward in the moment, but in hindsight, a lot of the decisions I made and a, a lot of the things that I promised I would be at or or promised my attendance at that I ended up for a good reason, even not being able to do. It, it was cowardice at the beginning to promise something I knew there was a, a, even a small chance that I might not be able to deliver on. Why do you think that these lies of convenience are permeating our 
age group in particular. I can I can speak on this in a in a professional sense. If somebody's in their twenties, I really have to almost get down to the core of their being and call them out on their crap. Um, just even simple stuff as a oh I'll call you back or. Um, yeah, we'll schedule a meeting for this time and, and they don't show up. And it's like, whoa, 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 hold on. This is a professional setting. Money is involved here. Okay. Lots and lots of money, lots and lots of people, my staff, myself, your employer, whatever it may be. And there's very young men in particular are just not reliable. And it's incredibly frustrating. Why do you think these lies of convenience have permeated our generation so deeply? Well, I can give you the ultimate law school answer, and any law student that may or may not be listening right now probably is guessing what I'm about to say. It depends. I think I think it it's multifaceted. I think social media has a role. I think not necessarily just social media, but I think technology, that so much business is not face-to-face anymore. It's, it's via phone. It's via email. It's via LinkedIn connections. And so when you remove that face-to-face component, it's really hard to look somebody in the eyes and tell them no, or to show up to a meeting that you said you're going to be at and say, actually, I can't do this. Um, It's even harder, not as much, but it's still difficult for a lot of people to just call someone and say, hey, Joe, I'm sorry. I I know I told you I was going to be at that meeting today at three, but some things have came up today and I'm not going to be able to do it. I think for most people, when you can hide behind a keyboard or texting on your phone, or not doing either, just blocking somebody. I, I think that's the easy way out. It's, it's the low road. And so I think as technology advances, and, and don't get me wrong, I think things like email and LinkedIn and uh, obviously smartphones and things like that, I think it's changed the way we do business. I think business as a whole is probably a whole lot more efficient because of these things. But that, that lack of face-to-face interaction, that lack of face-to-face communication, I think is, is getting lost a lot. I mean, a handshake used to mean a lot. A handshake used to be a binding seal, a binding agreement between two men. And it was almost always not broken. I mean, a handshake equaled a man's word and a man's word was his bond and it was not something to be taken lightly. I think that was also more in the days of smaller communities. Uh, in, in the days of, of our fathers, when their worlds were a little bit smaller and their communities were a little bit smaller, if you were known to be the kind of man who went back on his word, that would spread fast. And everybody you knew would know that you were not someone to be trusted. However, in the days of, of keyboards and computer screens and smartphones, uh, it's a lot easier to break your word. And it's a lot easier to not have to look the person in the eyes that you're breaking your word to. And I, I think that is probably one of the biggest reasons, uh, if I had to guess, for why a lot of men, especially in our generation, they're not as dependable. And I've been guilty of this many times. I won't claim to be to be spotless in this regard. Uh, but I think when you when you can hide behind a keyboard or or hide behind not even blocking some somebody on your phone or not responding to a text or or all the above, I think it it becomes a lot easier and a lot less punishing to go back on your word or to break an agreement. Yeah, it's definitely a lot easier to click the red X on a, on a windows outlook invite than it is to actually call somebody and say, Hey, I can't, I can't do that. And that's, you know, in a lot of the training sessions and such that I do, I I am very almost ruthless with the younger guys and just trying to teach them to articulate what they're trying to say and what they mean in a clear fashion to where there's no way to misconstrue what, what you're intending and to be a man of your word. I, I really do believe that that's almost a lost art. Um, so, and we can, we can elaborate more on that in the future, but I do, I do want to segue into, uh, you decided to sell your soul after undergrad and go to law school. I was, you know, I give myself a pat on the shoulder. I decided to not go to law school after I paid for my $3,000 Kaplan class, or I guess my dad paid for it. Thanks dad. Um, better than tens of thousands of dollars into law school. It's fair, fair. Um, but I decided not to go into law school and you decided to, uh, follow your lifelong dream, and you you alluded to it earlier that it didn't turn out the way you wanted to. So you are a JD MBA. Nobody can take that away from you. But tell us a little bit about the struggles of going to law school, realizing this is not what you want to do. It, that it was more of the dream of an eleven year old that uh, was hijacked into the reality of a twenty one year old than something you were actually passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, law school was something that. I didn't just want to do, but I, I knew I wanted to do for a long, long time. 
And looking back on it, I'm not even sure what my reasoning was for it. I don't think that when I was in middle school or high school and even undergrad, I, I don't believe that if you had asked me at those times, why do you want to be a lawyer? What is it about law that attracts you? I don't think I could have given you a good answer. I think for the most part, I've always been pretty good with my words. I've always been pretty comfortable public speaking and speaking in front of people. And I think somewhere along the line, someone must have said to me, you should be an attorney. And they, maybe they'd watched Law and Order that day. I don't know. Maybe they just saw me speaking in front of a judge. Uh, maybe I watched Law and Order, although that's probably not the case. I'm not that big of a fan of the show. But regardless, somewhere along the line, I think that bug got put in my ear. And I don't think I ever stopped to question it. I don't think I ever really had anybody that, that stopped and, and said, hey, if that's what you want, more power to you. But let's talk about why. Let's talk about what it is about law school that, that makes you excited about it. What is it about law that you can't wait to do? I think maybe I thought at one point in my life it was a route to politics. I think for a while, I think I wanted to, to be a politician. And maybe that was, I think I had a more of an idea of why I might've wanted to be a politician than I wanted to be a lawyer. But I thought that the law, being a lawyer was the only route to going into politics. And, and so I, I don't really fully know what it was or when it was that made me so gung-ho about law. It was just, it was never not the plan, I guess you could say. And it's, it's a little wild that we're having this podcast and this discussion today because I was during work today, believe it or not, I'm not going to get too much into it, but getting on LinkedIn is part of my work actually for those listening. I wasn't procrastinating or, or not, not doing what I needed to be doing, but I was on LinkedIn. I, I saw a video and the video was of some guy speaking at graduation. I didn't even check to see who the individual was. I'm sure he was a, a famous person. I, I couldn't really tell. I mean, he was all in a cap and gown and stuff like that. So it's kind of hard to tell. And for whatever reason, I decided to just click on the video. And the very first point, the, the guy mentioned, he said he wasn't some crazy academic. He wasn't the smartest man in the world, but he was going to give nine life lessons. And at first I thought, ah, I don't want to listen to some random dude. I don't even know his life lessons, but I'll listen to the first one and see if there's something of value in it. And I did. And the very first one the reason I say it was is kind of crazy that we're having this discussion right now is that the very first one, when I was listen, listening and watching this video today, says, and it's going to sound kind of weird at first, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It says, you don't have to have a dream, the one dream. It, it's fine if you've always had a dream. It's fine if there's a, a dream you've had for many, many years that you want to pursue, but you don't have to have one. So many people are hooked up are hooked on their lives of having that one dream that they want to do this. And ever since they were a kid, they wanted to be this or do this. And when I first heard it, I was like, man, this guy's kind of speaking to a bunch of graduates, telling them to not have a dream, like the, the anti Martin Luther King speaking to them. I was kind of taken aback at first and you could see the professors on the stage were a little taken aback too. Uh, the guy closest to him just kind of looked up at him surprisingly, but he kept going. And he said, it's fine if you have a dream, but he goes, I prefer to live my life with passionate dedication to the pursuit of short-term goals. And that really stuck out to me because for a huge portion of my life, the majority of my life, I had one goal, one goal to go to law school and to be an attorney. And when I got to law school and found that I wasn't as crazy about the profession as I thought I would be, it's like my world crashed around me. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a purpose in life anymore. I had had such a one-track mind and there was no other alternatives that I was at a complete loss. As a man, I felt like I had nothing. I felt like I had wasted my potential and wasted a huge portion of my life pursuing something that I no longer wanted to do. And the speaker at this graduation said a, a few more things, but the, one of the final things he said that stuck out to me regarding this first life lesson was the next worthy pursuit will probably appear in your periphery, which is why you should be careful of long-term dreams. And that just immediately spoke to me because that was me. I had one long-term dream to be an attorney and maybe transition that into politics. But for me, it was being an attorney. And I was so focused on that, that there very well might've been other worthy pursuits. But since they were in my periphery and I was focused so much on that one long-term goal, 
I probably missed a lot of great opportunities that came my way. And this random guy who now I'm going to feel guilty, I'm going to have to make sure I look him up and find his name and figure out who he was and why I was invited to this graduation. His, his very first life lesson was me. And it was something that I really wish I could have heard during those times. But so many people are, are sold on this idea of what's your dream and, and you have to accomplish your dream and every day work towards this one dream. And that's not to knock that. If you have a dream and a passion, by all means, go for it. But don't miss the things that might be around you. Don't get so focused on that one dream that you miss the things in your periphery and you're not focused on short-term goals. That passionate dedication to the pursuit of short-term goals is kind of what I'm doing right now. I don't know exactly what my 20-year goal is right now other than to live a good life and um, hopefully be successful and to, to have a, a family and a, a loving family and, and, and be successful in that right. But I don't have a be president of the United States or anything like that right now. Right now, I'm focused on the short term. I'm focused on pursuing things that are tangible and I'm keeping my eyes open all around me for any other opportunities that may be around. That was really powerful. And I would add on to that, that in my experience, talking with young men in particular, they're not even the ones that have a dream. Most of them aren't even living or looking to live their dream. They're living somebody else's dream. I come across this at work all the time. Young guys telling me, Hey, I want to, my goal is to make a million dollars a year. And I always ask them, okay, that's, that's fantastic. It's going to take a lot of hard work and years and years of dedication, but why? And every single time they say, well, I just want to. Okay. But why? That's a lot of sacrifice that you have to make. I'm not saying it's impossible, but why? And they just have this glazed over look on the, on their face and, and I can tell it's the first time that anybody's ever actually asked them, stopped them and said, okay, I hear your dream, but defend it. Explain to me why this is your dream. And a lot of times we get to the end of the conversation and it's not even the dream. It's just something they arbitrarily pick because it sounds cool or because they, they think that expectation is on them. I remember, I'm never going to forget this. One of my roommates in college, he decided not to be um, an accountant his senior year. And he was so scared to tell his dad. I mean, he was terrified, not because he was afraid of his dad, but because he was afraid of disappointing his dad. Very similar situation to you. His father is uh, the man in, in, in the town. Great, great man. I mean, really good guy, man of impeccable character. And Will, my roommate, um, had a fantastic and still has a fantastic relationship with his dad. And I remember Will telling me after he told his dad, he was so relieved because he told his dad, you know, I didn't want to change career trajectories because I didn't want to disappoint you and and let down the expectations. And his dad's response was, what expectations, son? You're the one who decided this. None of us ever forced you to say you want to go be a CPA at the big four. It was This was your goal and your objective. So sometimes we can even create things in our own head that um, we may perceive as other people putting on us or, or expecting out of us or wanting out of us. And it's not even a reality. It's just something we've created in our own head. I, I mean, I can fully understand that. Uh, it's, it's kind of like any time that you, you try to imagine the expectations that other people have of you, the chances of you being 100% correct or probably even 50% correct is probably completely wrong, unless it's your boss and they specifically tell you every week, these are my expectations of you. These are the goals you need to meet. Um, I would imagine that most people are very, very wrong about what they believe other people expect and want from them. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I relate a lot to your friend when I, when I got into law school and started figuring out and kind of going through this crisis of purpose. It was a very tough conversation that I had to have multiple times with my parents. I mean, for them. You know, they only saw the surface. They saw a son who was was pretty pretty successful in, in high school and in college, got a scholarship to go to law school. And when when I decided to tell them finally that I don't think I can do it, I don't think I would be happy being an attorney. It's just it's just not for me. It was it kind of didn't compute. And it, it took multiple conversations of me trying to tell them in different ways why it didn't feel right for me and why I didn't think I wanted to do it anymore. And, and I mean, in hindsight, it was hard for me to understand why they couldn't understand, but 
a couple of years later, I can kind of see how from their perspective, it was the, the son for, who for you know, 15 years of his life wanted to be an attorney suddenly in the middle of law school out of nowhere because they didn't see the the in-between they didn't see the day-to-day of me at law school in the in the struggle suddenly coming out of nowhere and saying i don't want to practice law and so i can definitely understand why it was it was hard for them to understand and at the end of the day i think it's the responsibility we we talked about truth earlier and i think you have to first and foremost be truthful with yourself but with as far as the people that are close in your life to you, your parents, your friends, whoever it may be, it could be your boss. You have to be truthful with them too. And it's it's not just we, we talked about lies of convenience earlier. I would say the the other biggest, most prominent lies are lies of omission. A lot of people don't even consider them lies. And me not going to my parents and even some of my friends. I mean, it took you one day basically banging on my door saying, dude, what's up? What's going on? You are not the same. You're not yourself anymore what's going on? Because I wasn't coming to you. I wasn't telling you, hey, man, I I just don't know about law school anymore. I don't know about practicing. It's something I always want to do, but suddenly I'm not wanting to do it anymore. It was my responsibility and my duty to, to talk with that, talk about that with the people I cared most about. And obviously that included my parents. And so I can definitely see in hindsight, although not at the time, that it was, it was coming out of left field. And it was, it would, it would have shocked me if, if my child seemingly out of nowhere started saying he didn't want to do the thing he had always wanted to do. And so I think that's, I think that's a duty and I think that's a responsibility, especially as a man. I think men often think of things in terms of duty, in terms of responsibility. And I think not only do we need to be truthful to ourselves about what we want and why we want it, um, we have to be truthful and and not give in to those, those lies of convenience and omission to those people we care about. If we truly care about them, we truly care about them being a part of our lives. And by extension, they have to know what's going on in our lives and, and, and how we're feeling about things. And that's something that I, I, I definitely realized in hindsight, although it was, it was a tough conversation at the time. Going to people who, who care about you and you care about them and, and feeling that innate sense of disappointing the people you care most about is – you know, I wouldn't wish that on, on just about anybody. Well, and I think at the end of the day, I don't want anybody to misunderstand and say, Hey, you know, we're against goals or something like that. We're, I think both you and I are very much so for goals. I mean, I know you and I both have daily goals, weekly goals. Uh, we've, we've both got things with that, that we're striving for in our lives. But I think the, the message that you're really driving home is, just that brutal honesty with yourself, that honesty around, even if I have a goal, but I don't know the purpose, the why behind that goal, the real why, the truthful one, the one where you've got to ask yourself two, three, four, five, six times why you're doing it before you get the real answer, that that energy would probably be better spent being cultivated into something else and, and directed into something else. But I think the lessons you learned I mean, maybe somebody who's 22 years old and their senior year of college is going to hear this podcast and they're teetering between going to law school and not. I, I wish it was okay in our society to say, hey, take a year off. Seriously, just chill for a year. <laughs> That's what my dad told me when I was deciding between going to law school and not. He literally said, hey, take a year off. What's the worst that can happen? In a year, you're 23 years old, whoop de freaking do. And, and I wish that was more acceptable in our society to say, hey, let's slow down before we make some major commitment that we can't actually fulfill. Um, but Adam, you know, we're, we're coming up on time here, but one thing I wanted you to really, you know, share with the audience is if you could go back in time to 18-year-old Adam Roddy, um, what advice would you give him about being a man? I would say focus more on yourself and what you want to do rather than than the expectations that are out there for you. And a lot of those expectations may have been perceived. They might not have been completely true. But regardless, I lived a large portion of my life based upon what I thought would please others, what I thought would would this is going to sound like I'm in this is going to sound like I'm in the you know 1200s, but what would bring honor upon my family or in feudal oh, Japan or something it. like that? Yeah. And I lived so much of my life wanting to be the person who 
could go out and hang out with friends easily. But I knew that it was, or at least I thought that it was expected of me to make really good grades and to, to be involved and to lead. And don't get me wrong, I got a lot of enjoyment from those things and, and self-worth as well. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that I did through those organizations that I am, I'm proud of and I will always be proud of. But at the same time, I know a lot of people who they graduated undergrad or they, I was very grateful in high school that I had seven really close friends. But there's a lot of things that I've been a part of, whether it was just an organization or my entire collegiate experience, that I graduated knowing that I might have had a lot of accolades around my neck and on my cap and gown, whether they were tassels or ropes or stoles or all that stuff. But the the unadorned person next to me probably graduated with significantly more close friends. And I think it came back to that innate not living life for myself and a little bit like what we meant, not asking myself why. I think that is so crucial. I think the why is more, way more important than the what. There's a lot of things you can have goals to do and there's a lot of things you can want to do and there's a lot of things you may be doing right now. But if you don't know why you're doing them, if you're just going through the motions, if you're just aimlessly doing things for the sake of doing them, I would imagine that you could be considered one of the most successful people out there, but you might feel very empty inside. And I think I definitely did. I think when I got to law school, I felt that emptiness. I felt like I had went through so much and done so much only to get somewhere that I did not have the passion for. And I think that, I think those would be the two main lessons is, is do things a little bit more for myself, live more for myself and ask myself why. Ask myself why I wanted to be in law school, go to law school, why I wanted to do this or what it would bring to my own life to combine the two lessons, I guess. And, and that's, that's what I would go back in time and, and tell younger, uh, slightly more naive Adam Roddy what he, what he could better himself with. And I, th- I think those, I'd like to think that those lessons could apply to a lot of people. You know what I've loved about these episodes we've done so far the most? Uh, my smooth, jazzy no. voice. I've loved the fact that both you and James allowed for yourselves to be, um, what's a good term? I, I don't want to say vulnerable because I don't, well, maybe, maybe that's the right term, but re- go ahead. I, th- I think probe is the <laughs> word. Yes. For. Okay. That one. No, but really allowing yeah. for yourself to, to speak from the heart and speak from experience and talk about the good and the bad. And that's really the the point of all of this. That's really the point of millennial manhood. We we want to, and, and it, when I originally brought the idea to you, we want to help people get better. And the only way you can do that is by putting that mirror up to yourself and saying, hmm, here's what's wrong or here's what was wrong. So is there any uh, final words? Because I've loved your story. I've heard your story before, but I know the people who are going to be listening are going to love this. And folks, you guys are going to hear plenty of Adam just through commentary and and episodes and things like that. But I really wanted him to get an opportunity to introduce himself to the audience. But is there any final words that you have about the podcast, about anything that you've said today? Uh, any Anything you want to share with the audience? I think more than anything right now, I think Yavitz and I, are at, we're at a crucial stage in this podcast. If you, if you like this kind of content, if you like speakers like this, um, please, I mean, let us know. I mean, I'm sure Yavza may throw in another plug in about this at the, the end of this episode, but, uh, we're really, this is not so much, a us just talking to each other and it's not so much the, the Yavitsa Jurchevich show with, with the assistant to the host, Adam Roddy. It's, it's a, it's a kind of a journey of self-discovery for us to get very cliche sounding. Um, Yavitsa mentioned that he appreciated my vulnerability during this podcast. And I didn't really think that I was going to end up being that vulnerable on this podcast from the onset. I started out thinking that we were going to talk about my life and, and the conversation naturally progressed to that point. And it's, it's weird as, as a man, the last thing sometimes we want to be is vulnerable. Um, the, the, we, I've seen a lot of men who would sooner die before they would cry in front of somebody or before they would share something or even just talk about a serious mistake or embarrassment in their life. And I think Yavitsa and my friendship was really kind of formed on the foundation of kind of that vulnerability. 
Uh, Yavitsa is the kind of guy that you may be sitting at a Mexican restaurant eating chips and salsa, but the conversation oftentimes will go to serious places. It'll go to these places of vulnerability. And I think as men, we have to have somebody in our life who does that. Maybe it's your father. Maybe it's your best friend. It could be your brother. It could be your sister. It could be anybody in your life. It could be your significant other. But so often in life, we feel like we can't or should not be vulnerable. And we're really missing out on something by ignoring that facet. Because if we can't be vulnerable with somebody close in our lives, what are we going to do? We're going to do the cliche male thing of bottling it up. And when you bottle it up, it festers and it grows worse and worse and worse until something breaks. And usually it's you. And so I've been guilty of that. I'm sure Yavta has been guilty of that before. But I thank God that over the last few years, we've been for each other, the kind of person who can be like, this is the stuff going on in my life right now. I'm dealing with something or something's going on that's that I'm really struggling with and I need to talk to you about it. And we've really appreciated that. Now, we're also the first people to make fun of each other. But at the same time, I think every man, especially nowadays, we, we need that confidant. We need that encourager and we need that person who's going to check us. And if you don't have that in your life, I, I think you should really think more about it and think about who you're close to in, the, in your life that, that could be that role for you. I don't think there's a better way to end this podcast. Uh, millennial Manhood, CIP at gmail.com. If you got constructive criticism, compliments, or interview ideas or articles or whatever it may be, but we'll talk to you again next week. We'll tinkle, we'll tinkle, we'll tinker. Sorry about that. We'll tinker around with different dates to release the podcast. Right now, we're on a Friday schedule. I think I'll try Wednesday, see how that works out for folks. But um, share, 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 share. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever. Don't care. Just get it out there. I think this is going to be incredibly impactful, and I'm having a ton of fun. And I know Adam is, and the feedback's been incredibly positive. So we look forward to bringing you more content. Y'all have a good night. <laughs>